You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. But with that, you guys, grab your Bibles now, and let's turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel together. Daniel chapter 3 is where we are today as we continue in our study of this book. And if you're visiting here, if you're new to Calvary Chapel, here at Calvary Chapel, we study the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's just what we do. That's a distinctive of our, of our church, and I'm very thankful for it because I don't have to come up with new material each week. I just get to read the Bible, and uh, we just get to go through it together, and that's just wonderful. But we will be studying the entire chapter today as we move through in this familiar, powerful story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego there in the land of Babylon, standing before Nebuchadnezzar. And what we're going to see today as the title for today's study would show is Faith That Stands. For you note takers, Faith That Stands is the title, and that is exactly what we will see as we move through the text. But as we study the Bible, as we seek to study books of the Bible, it helps us to know the background of the book, to know how the book breaks up, and to remind ourselves of key themes within the book as we move through it, so that you never forget it, I never forget it, and we know more about the Bible. And so with the book of Daniel, we know that the author of the book of Daniel is Daniel that we see within the pages of this book. And there are several reasons to believe that, but the best reason I know is the fact that Jesus said that Daniel wrote it, and I'm good with Jesus saying that he wrote this book. Um, just because Jesus is Jesus, and I'm good with that. But we also know that the book of Daniel breaks up into two distinct parts. We have the first six verses, or, or chapters, the first six chapters of this book are historical narrative. As we see there, the life and movement of Daniel and his companions there as they are in captivity in Babylon, we see how they are there following the Lord and being led by the Lord as they live there in captivity. In Daniel chapter 7 through 12, however, it takes a turn from historical narrative to prophetic revelation, where Daniel records several prophecies that he receives from the Lord in his time in captivity, and so he relays them to us, the reader. And it's important for us who know the Lord, who know the Bible, and who want to know the Bible better to understand that Daniel is really the backbone of biblical prophecy in many ways. To understand the prophecies that are there written within the book of Daniel is to understand much of the New Testament. Much of the rest of the Bible makes sense as you study the prophecies written in Daniel. And so I'm very excited when we get to chapter 7 through 12, and I hope that you are as well. And from the book of Daniel, we draw application from two key themes that we see come out. The first one is that of the sovereign rule of the Lord in this world. The fact that it is God who is ruling over all, who holds the world in his hands and so is responsible for the rising and the falling of world powers, who is the one who is on the throne always and will be on the throne always. And we see that explicitly through the book of Daniel. Along with that, we see a call for God's people to stand with the Lord, to be pleasing to the Lord always, to know that as He is ruling and reigning, as He is leading us, we are called to stand with Him in this world. And as we do so, we're doing exactly what we're called to do as God's people. And today, as we study Daniel chapter 3, we are going to see both the sovereign rule of the Lord as well as His people standing with Him throughout the text. I'm very excited about that. So with that, let's jump into Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And reading through verse 7 as we start our study, where it says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and the symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you, God, for this opportunity again that we have, the freedom that we have here, Lord, to come and sit and just, Lord, just be in your presence. Lord, to worship you and exalt you with our words and our hearts, Lord, as we sing to you. And God, also now to worship you with the study of your word. And I pray that as we do this, that Lord, as we look to your word, as we seek to hear from you, that we would just open our hearts and minds just before you and allow you to be our teacher and to help us, God, to understand what your word says. And as we do so, Lord, I pray that we would also learn how to apply your word. So God, lead us in this time. Help us. We need you. And we, Lord, just acknowledge that need for you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, to really help us dive into chapter three and the things that are going on right now, we have to take a step back and look at some things from chapter two, namely the vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream and its interpretation that we saw in chapter two. If you missed last week, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, he had a dream and it disturbed him. And so what he did is he called in his court of wise men and sorcerers to come in and to relate to him, not only the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself, so as to make sure that they were worth their weights. And so he calls them in, they're unable to do so. And he's like, all right, well, then I'm just going to kill you guys. And that's what he seeks to do. He sends out an execution order to all of the wise men there in the nation of Babylon. And as they come to Daniel, Daniel says, oh, what's going on? And he's like, give us time. And he gets the time. He prays. The Lord gives him the vision and the interpretation. It's an amazing story. If you missed last week, read Daniel chapter two and check out the study online if you would like to. But what we know from that interpretation is that as Nebuchadnezzar sees this image, what is this statue of a man, he sees that this statue is made up of different material. The head is of gold. The chest and arms are of silver, the belly and the thighs are of bronze, the legs are iron, and then the feet are a mixture of iron and clay. And what's represented there, we saw, are world empires, kingdoms that in Daniel's day are going to come on the scene, and in our day have already come on the scene, save for the last kingdom, the mixture of iron and clay represented in the feats. And what we learned last week as Daniel was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar is that Nebuchadnezzar represented and Babylon represented the head of gold. And Daniel tells him that, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are a great king. You are a great king, but you're a great king because the Lord has made you this great king. And we see that in Daniel chapter 2, verses 37 through 38. They're on the screen uh, for reminder where Daniel says, you, O king, are a king of kings. 
For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold." You see, Nebuchadnezzar was made aware that his kingdom was given to him by the Lord. It wasn't won necessarily just by him or by his hand. It was given to him. It was, he was a king because God had him there as the king. He also learned that his kingdom was not going to last forever. He learned that there would be kingdoms that would come after him. And ultimately, there would be an everlasting kingdom that was going to be set up there that would completely dethrone all earthly kingdoms. And we saw that in the stone that was cut without hands that smashed into that image there in chapter 2 and completely obliterates it. And it shows us there the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ to this earth. And it's just amazing, amazing prophecy written within, within chapter 2. And Nebuchadnezzar, after all of this, what he does is he acknowledges Daniel there at the end. He's like, oh, Daniel, you're amazing. Your God is amazing. He gives this interpretation. It's really cool. It's almost this profession of faith type of thing that Nebuchadnezzar does um, that he's going to do at the end of today as well. And we'll talk more about that next week. But what we see Nebuchadnezzar do is he professes there to Daniel, oh, this is amazing. This interpretation is true and it's right and it's good. And we discussed during our study last week how one of the king, key themes of Daniel that showed out through chapter 2 that even Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged was that God is the one who is sovereign, who raises kingdoms, and who puts kingdoms away. And what we see here in Nebuchadnezzar is a seemingly right understanding of this, an understanding that, yes, I have this kingdom, God's given it to me, and it's not going to last forever. But then what we see Nebuchadnezzar do today as we open up chapter 3 is he there sets up this golden image. And really in this, what we see within Nebuchadnezzar is an act of defiance. An act of defiance that King Nebuchadnezzar has towards the interpretation of the dream that was given to him in chapter 2 that he seemed to go along with. And that defiance comes, of course, in the statue that he has set up on the plain of Dora. Verse 1 gives us insight into this as we look at the king's defiance for you note-takers. How there in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, he sets up this image, what is a statue there, and it's, it says 60 cubits high, that's 90 feet, and then its width was six cubits, that's nine feet wide. So it's a big statue. And upon its completion, what he does is we notice he invites all the officials, all that were named there within chapter 3. He invites them there to the dedication ceremony. So if you were someone within the nation of Babylon, you got a front row seat as well as the rest of the civilization was to come as well. And the text is meant to set up really this scene, again, of those who he calls specifically those, notor notorible, those notor notorable, notable, there we go, people from the nation of Babylon coming to the front line and then all the rest of the civilization standing there. And what's meant to see here is this mass of people before this image there on the plain of Dora that were at the sounding of the symphony to bow the knee before that image, to their bow the knee and as we picture this scene, the Sunday school flannel graphs and kids' Bible really help us to do this well. The heart that we see in Nebuchadnezzar is what we're meant to key in on today. Because it's, again, a heart, like I said, of defiance to the plan and the will of God that he is very aware of. Again, going back to the image from his dream, Nebuchadnezzar knows that he is the head of gold, but he also knows that the kingdoms that come after him, however inferior they may, they're still coming after him, which means that he has to fade away. 
The kingdoms that he's aware of come after him, but that means that his golden rule, his kingship is not going to last forever. And so Nebuchadnezzar here setting up this gold image and demanding worship from all the peoples is really, again, a direct message of defiance towards what he knows is the will and plan of the Lord. In an act of defiance and a seeking to take what he knows is God's plan away from the Lord, to define it really for himself to take the plan that he knows and to rewrite that plan, to say, I I see what you say, but I'm going to have it my way. You say I'm just the head of gold. Well, I'll give you a statue of all gold and demand worship of it. He takes what he knows is true and he seeks to rewrite it to be what he wants it to be, to make it where he defines truth and not the God of the universe. And in doing this, Nebuchadnezzar really typifies for us what the world does really typifies for us what the world is about in its fallen state and nature. Where the world we know, it takes the plan or the design that we see God having set up in his word for this world and seeks to rewrite it to make it more palatable for the world and those within it and how they feel it should be. And to rewrite it so as to walk instead of following how God has set it up. And this is a result of what we see all the way back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, there we have the fall. There in the Garden of Eden, what was a perfect place in the perfect universe with all of the perfect creation that God had made, we have this serpent that comes in. And he there speaks to Eve as she's there in the garden. And he, what does he do? He comes to her and he propagates a lie. He puts plants seeds within her head and saying, hey, did God really say that if you eat of the fruit that you're going to die? Did God really say that this would happen if you eat of it? And she's like, yes, of course he did. And he's like, you won't do that. You surely won't die. See the fruit, touch the fruit, eat the fruit, see that you won't die. Instead, you will be like the Lord. And of course, she takes, she eats, she gives to her husband, he eats, and sin enters into the world. Because humans saw there an option that was different than what the Lord had said was right, took it for themselves, and walked opposite of the way that the world, or the way that the Lord wanted them to do, and thus the world fell. They see the plan, they see the word, they see the prescription, but they rewrite it. And that's just the first in the line of what we see there, even in the first parts of the Bible. I mean, immediately following that, you have the story of Cain and Abel, where there, Adam and Eve, they have two sons, and Abel and Cain, they bring their offering to the Lord. And God says to Abel, hey, I accept that offering. To Cain, he says, hey, no, I don't accept this one. But what you notice there is that he says to Cain, why is your countenance fallen? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do right, you'll be accepted. But if you don't, sin crouches at your door and it's ready to devour you. It's ready to consume you, to take you. And what does he do? He doesn't repent. He doesn't say, okay, Lord, your way is best. What he does is he takes matters into his own hands. He kills his brother and then walks out the consequences for the rest of his life. He knows what the Lord says is right. He knows what he could do, but instead he says, I'll do it my way. The Tower of Babel there in the book of Genesis after the flood is another example for us. There on the plain of Shinar, what we have after the flood is the civilization is growing. People are growing again. The population is getting large and the Lord's like, hey, spread out. Don't stay in one spot. Go into all the earth. And what they say is, hey, we know the Lord says go, but let's come together. The Lord says scatter, but let's gather and let's build up to the heavens so that we never lose sight of where we're at, so that we are always the center. They see what the Lord says, and they say, we'll do it our way. They rewrite it, and that tower there is this act, this image of defiance to what they know is right, what the Lord 
calls them to. And the rest of the Bible, there's stories throughout that we see. But moving forward to today, the world's still about doing this. The world's still about seeing what the Lord has set up as right in his, in his word and saying, ah, we can do it a different way. Take the subject of life, life there within the womb, that life begins there at conception, that it is a human being, not a clump of cells. The world sees that and says, I, I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to rewrite that. I'm going to rewrite that. And now what we have is we have the murder of millions, billions of innocents, not only in the womb, but progressing even to out of the womb now. Look also at gender, sexuality, marriage, relationships. The Lord writes in his word exactly how it's to be set up. He created man and woman. And marriage is between man and woman. But the world says you can be what you want. You can be what you feel like you want to be today and then change it tomorrow or change it on the same. Whatever you want to do, how you identify, how you are most comfortable, that is what you can do. And the world says it's up to you. It's not up to the Lord. It says love is love no matter who it's between. That's not what the Bible says. But what this world does and has always been doing is just been moving and saying, hey, we see what's right. We see with the Lord how he set it up, but we're going to rewrite it so as to be able to do it our way, be able to have it my way. And Nebuchadnezzar here typifies for us, and it's such a picture for us of what this world does and is doing ever increasingly within the world, taking what God says is right and true and changing it to fit what is right in the eyes of the world. And what happens in the process of that is that the world, and ultimately what we know who's driving this is Satan, who is that enemy that we have that is ruling in this world. What is happening is the worship of God who is true and sovereign and right in all ways. What happens is the worship that's due to him is deviated to the world because we become self, our ideas become self, how we want it becomes what we worship. And the world feeds that. And I point that out to us today here, not to educate us, because you guys know this. You guys know that this is the way the world is. You guys know that the world is falling and at enmity with the Lord. You know that sin is rampant and real. This isn't to educate. But what this is to do is to build and show us that what we're going to see in the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a few moments is an example to all of us as the church as we walk with the Lord in this world, set apart and standing with him every step of the way. And what we need to know and realize is that what we see here in the pages of Scripture is the same thing that we are called to do as we walk out our lives and walk in this world. And to realize that as we stand with the Lord, we're standing in the right place. As we stand with Him, we're walking exactly where we need to be and that He's with us every step of the way. And we see that with these three men, these three friends, as they make their stance. And so let's turn now back to the Word and pick up in verse 8 as we see them stand up. He says, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. And they spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, 
Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, well, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Going back again to chapter 2 to help us really build context for our characters here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've been promoted at the request of Daniel at the end of chapter 2. And no doubt they, as they saw, as they were in chapter 1, um, along with Daniel, they, they were one of the four there in his group that stood out amongst the others because they, like Daniel, purposed in their hearts to not defile themselves, to not bend when it came to their relationship with the Lord. And in that, the Lord gave them favor with man and with him as they were in captivity. And notice with me that they are working there in the nation of Babylon. Again, going back uh, to what we saw in chapter one with Daniel, and I want to remind us of this, the fact that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were in Babylon, and they were, you know, accepting of that. I, 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 do, I do believe they were probably homesick because they, you know, missed home. But they were, as we see here in the text, they were working, they were living, they were a part of the society there within Babylon to a point. They accepted promotions, they worked, and they walked there within that nation as they were in captivity. And I remind us of that just really fast, just to remember that we as believers, as the church, we're called as well to not seek to escape, not seek to always just kick and scream and raise a fuss as we're in the world. But there are points and places and spaces within our life where we are to say, hey, we're going to live in this world. We're going to live here and we're going to show as we live here a difference in our life to those around us. We're going to show as we live here a difference in the way that we live and how we show the Lord and represent Him as we work, as we live, as we walk in relationship, that we're called not to just seek to escape or seek to always just kick and scream as we're here, but to be where we're at because God has us here in the same way that He had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. However, just in the same way that Daniel did, so too do we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stay and walk in that nation accordingly, but always according to God's word. And always according to his word, would they stand when it came to them disobeying the Lord or disobeying the world? And what this does is it marks them out as faithful as they're working in, in the as they're, they're working in Babylon, as they're working and walking. What we see is they're marked out as faithful. They gain favor with man, they gain favor with the Lord, of course. But it also, of course, marks them for attack. And that's what we see in verse 8. As certain Chaldeans, these are those wise men who would be there within the nation of Babylon, they come forward, and they come forward to Nebuchadnezzar like, hey, these three guys, they're not bowing down. These Jews are not bowing down to this image that you've set up. And so, of course, Nebuchadnezzar in verse 13, he commands them to be brought to him. And no doubt, King Nebuchadnezzar knows these guys. Because again, just in chapter 2, he had just promoted them. He had promoted them. We know that they had favor with, the, with, with, with King Nebuchadnezzar. So he knows who they are. So as they come to him, notice that it's not immediately that they're thrown into the fiery furnace. He actually gives them a second chance. Did you catch that? 
The decree was you would be immediately thrown into the fiery furnace. But Nebuchadnezzar here, he sees who they are. and He's like, you guys. And he speaks to them. Don't you know that at the sound of the music you are to bow? Don't you know that if you do so, well, that's good? Don't you know that if you do so, you'll do, you'll do well? I'm not going to throw you in this time. But if you do refuse again, you're going in there. He gives them the choice to bow or to burn and threatens them further by assuring them that no God would be able to save them. He says, who? He either poses a challenging question to them, who? What God is there that can save you from my hand? And I love how they answer. Again, you could just read this story because it's so good and it could just speak so loudly to us. I love how they answer. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. What they're saying there is simply there's no need for us to defend ourselves in this. We know who we stand before, and it's not you. We stand before the Lord, and we before him are innocent. The guilt that we have is with you in your way, but before the Lord, we are innocent. So we don't need to answer you in this. But then they go on. They tell him that if it's the case, referring to their going to the furnace, he's like, if you're going to throw us in there, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. And they're throwing here Nebuchadnezzar's threat back at him. They say, look, you think there's no God that can save us. We believe in a God who is able to do so. We believe in a God who is able to bring us out of this fiery furnace that you want to throw us into. They had faith in the Lord that he could do so. As they stood with him, they believed that the Lord would be with them, would protect them, would draw them out of there unharmed. But they also realized that the Lord is sovereign and real, and his way is higher. And so they end their statement by saying, but if not, if there's no rescue, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor we will worship your gold image, which you have set up. They wanted it to be abundantly clear that whether they lived or died in the furnace that they knew they were going to, because they were going to stand, they weren't going to bend. Either way, they were not going to bow to the image. They weren't going to give worship where it wasn't due. They weren't going to deviate their worship that was due only to the Lord, to this image that this worldly king had set up. And they wanted to make that clear to Nebuchadnezzar. And as you think about this, and as you think maybe about an image that you, if you've seen this, maybe in a children's Bible, or maybe something like that, you think about these three guys standing there. What comes to mind, and what should come to mind, because these guys were humans just like we are, is the amount of pressure from the world to cave in this moment. Again, because they're humans. And we as humans innately desire inclusivity. We innately desire to be accepted and to be okay with everyone. And you can be as antagonistic as they come in here. But we as humans innately desire that. You can be as individualistic and as I'm my own self as you want to be. But as human beings, that's what we desire. We desire community. We desire to be that way. And in this moment, this pressure to cave, to bow the knee, would have been so real for these guys. It would have been real. But what we see in them, what we see in their stance there, is a reality that they knew who they were standing with. They knew whose side they were standing on. 
They knew that as they were standing, they were standing. That was a point that they would not bend on, that they wouldn't break on. Because in the same way that Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself in chapter 1, that would have been a direct disobedience to the Lord. So would this be a direct disobedience to the Lord as well? It was no longer, yeah, we're just working in Babylon. We're living here. This is where we get our mail. This would be, I'm accepting Babylon and the way it goes here. And that would be in opposition to what the Lord had. And what we see in this as they stand here with the pressure to bend, we see an example for us as the church as we walk in this world. Again, because Nebuchadnezzar typifies for us what this world is doing. This world that is going ever against the Lord, ever against how the Lord has set up the world to go, the world says, we're going the opposite way. And what the church is called to do, what we're called to do is to stand with the Lord, to stand with him no matter the consequence that we face within the world. We stand with the Lord and we stand with what the Bible says is true and right. And what that means and how that plays out for us as the church, we mentioned this last week and we'll probably be mentioning it as we continue on because this is a consistent theme within the book of Daniel, is this is going to look differently than some of us have ever encountered before in our life especially here in our American church context. There are places and spaces in this world right now where standing with the Lord is very different than how we have it. And they've been standing that way for years. Where meeting underground or meeting and, and risking life and limb is a very real thing. And that is a choice that they make to say, hey, we're going to stand with the Lord, knowing full well that he can deliver them. But even if he doesn't, they're standing. And for us here as we seek to stand with the Lord individually, corporately, gathered, scattered, whatever it may be, we need to realize that that could mean that we stand sometimes in a way that is seen as crazy, seen as defiant, seen as wrong. But we are called to stand with the Lord every step of the way. And what we need to do as the church is to be those individually and corporately who are praying and seeking the Lord in His Word, so as to discern from the Lord, and it needs to be from the Lord, and to know when and where and how to stand so that we give the worship that the Lord is so due to Him and so that we show out as a testimony to the world around us. And the pressure from the world to capitulate to its way is only going to grow more aggressive as the days go on. There's no escaping that. There's no escaping the fact that the Lord's way is going to increasingly become the unpopular way, even more so as the world moves. But how much more important it is for the church to say, you know what, we're going to stand with the Lord and shine out and show out as that happens. And we also need to remember, as what we're about to read in just a moment, that as we do so, that the Lord is with us every step of the way. As we stick with the Lord, as we walk with Him, as we seek to say, with God I stand, and with Him only, and I will bow the knee to no one else. What we need to know is that as we do so, God is with us every step of the way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew that. And they exemplify for us as they walk into that furnace or thrown into that furnace, this faith that they realize as they're in there. Pick it with me in verse 19 as we finish out the chapter. Where it says, the Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. 
And then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servant who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I have made a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the word of Shadrach, Meshach, and against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there's no other God who can deliver like this. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. As these men stand there with the Lord and do not bow. The king's demeanor goes from giving them a second chance. I know you guys, to, you guys are dead. And he has them bound immediately. He heats the furnace to seven times, to seven times hotter than it normally is, so much so that it kills the guys who are supposed to be throwing them in there. And as they're in the furnace, there's not cries of pain and, and death, but instead there's nothing really, I guess, because there's nothing recorded. And there's a Nebuchadnezzar who's very astonished as he looks and he sees not three guys walking around. I mean, that's crazy enough, three guys just walking around in the fiery furnace. But he sees four. And he says there in verse 25, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. He's perplexed and he's talking to his other guys. Hey, didn't we throw three in there? He says, and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Bible scholars believe that this is what is called a Christophany. That is an Old Testament appearing of Jesus Christ there with the boys in the furnace. And there's some interesting little, little thoughts there about, about him being in there. And I kind of like this little debate. And whatever side you fall on is whatever. But I, I lean to one side just because I like the idea of it. The idea that Jesus is in there with them is not it, it, that, that, that he's in there. Absolutely. The Lord is with them. But whether or not Shadrach and Meshach knew about, it, knew about it, or if it was just for Nebuchadnezzar, that's kind of a question. And I kind of like to think Nebuchadnezzar's the only one that saw that. Because what I like to think here is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they went into that furnace, the three of them, knowing that God was with them, whether they saw him or not. Whether they saw him or not in there, they knew he was with them. Seeing there the Son of Man walking around, the Son of God walking around, I believe that was for Nebuchadnezzar. I believe that he saw that there. And either way, the message is the same. God was with him. God was with those who were faithful to stand with him. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is like, come out of there, you're alive. And so they walk out and it's like, whoa, you know, they're not smelling like fire. There's no singe of anything on them. And it's like, this is amazing. And of course, what we see again is there Nebuchadnezzar, he spoke saying, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it, really what we see is kind of this profession of faith or at least of knowledge towards the Lord that, that Nebuchadnezzar has. And we're going to investigate that a little bit further again next week as we look at Nebuchadnezzar's second dream that he's going to have in chapter four. So we're going to dive more into his acknowledgement of the Lord. But he makes a decree there that no one can speak ill of, of, of their God. And if they do, then they're cut in pieces and their houses are torn down because that's the only threat that Nebuchadnezzar seems to have along with fiery furnaces. But whatever. But the thought that we leave here today with, and again, this story, we know it. We know it's amazing. They walk out. It's like, ah, the Lord's amazing. But the, the, the message that we leave with here today is a simple one, which is great because we need simple sometimes. And that is that the Lord was with them. The Lord was with them and the Lord was faithful to be with them. And that's something that we as the church, I think, need to hear in a fresh way today and remember in a very real way that that's not just something that we say or something that we think that we just kind of let pass off as a simple phrase that we say again, kind of like with God's on the throne or God's with you. That's true. And that's always going to be true. And that should be so true to you that it impacts every part of your life to where you know you can walk with him. Because God is on the throne and there's no one that can get him off of there. And God is with you as you stand with him. And as you walk with him, he is with you. And we need to remember that today. And we need to remember that today when we stand, whether we stand with a majority of people or we're standing alone. Whether you are the majority or the minority, you need to know that if you're standing for the Lord, that he's going to stand there with you. He is with you every step of the way. And you need to know that the Lord is with you as you stand with him in a group of people or if you're standing with him by yourself, alone and in secret. And that's something that we need to speak on a little bit more today, that standing with the Lord is not just something we do in public. It's something we choose to do in private. It's something we choose to do in private because in the same way that the world is consistently going against the Lord, so too is our flesh warring with the Lord as well. And it's in those private moments of us being alone when our flesh says, hey, let's do this. Hey, let's go this way. The world says, this is okay. You know it feels good. You know you want to. You know you like doing that. So why not? It's in those moments that we say, no, I won't bow the knee to that either. And the Lord's with you as you choose to be with him. He is there with you. What we also need to hear today is that the Lord is with you whether you stand strong and nothing happens? Or if the world comes at you? Whether you walk out or you burn up, the Lord is with you. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew. They knew that God could rescue them from the furnace. Beyond a shadow of doubt, they had faith that the Lord was powerful enough to do that. They knew that the God that could speak everything into creation could also tell that fire to stay away from them. They knew that, but they also knew that if they went in there and they died, that God was still just as good. That God was still just as good and just as faithful and just as able and just as worthy to be worshiped as if they walked out. In the same way that he was with them, he's with us. In the same way that he was with them, he's with us as we purpose in our hearts, as Daniel did and as Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego did, to stand with him. He's with us. And what we need to ask ourselves today is, are we with him? 
Are we with the Lord? Are you for the Lord? Are you standing with and for the Lord in your life? And what we need to know is that's a question that we need to answer today. That's a question that you need to answer today, that you need to answer every morning that you wake up. Am I with the Lord? Am I standing with Him? Am I going to purpose in my heart to stand with Him today? Because standing strong, not bowing the knee to the world, that's not a decision that we make in the moment. That's a decision that we make before that comes our way. That's a decision that we make, that I'm going to stand with the Lord no matter what comes at me today. That's a decision I make in the morning as I open up my Bible and say, God, speak to me, lead me, I need you. That's something I think and I decide in my heart when I look at my family and I look at my kids and I say, I want to lead them and I want to guide them so that they can stand. That's a decision that I make today, not one that I make in the moment. Because in the moment, flesh will always deviate to comfort. It will default to what's easiest. So are you standing with the Lord today? Are you standing with Him? Are you ready to stand with Him? You husbands in the room, are you ready to stand up for your family and lead them to where they can stand? You wives, are you right there with your husbands along the way? You moms and dads, you grandparents, Calvary Chapel Paris as a body, are we standing and ready to stand with the Lord and so goad one another on to doing that as well? Are we ready to stand with the Lord? Are we making the decision today to stand with him and know that as we do, he stands with us, that he's faithful? And he's faithful whether it's easy for us or whether it's hard for us. Whether we take the day or seem to come out on top or whether we're mowed down, do we believe that the Lord is faithful and worthy for us to worship and to stand with every step of the way? It's a question you have to ask. It's a question you have to answer honestly. What's amazing is that the Lord is faithful, again, to help you, to strengthen you, to walk with you every step of the way. So today, decide as we all need to. Are you going to stand with him? Are you standing with him? Knowing that he's faithful to be with you. Let's pray.